And then the, la the last thing, uh, you know, I heard from a, uh, from a banker who I admire, uh, he said, I'm a pessimist, but I wasn't born that way. Yeah, <laughs> which basically just means experience. Yes, it, me it means that you should have a healthy appreciation for the downside yep. and for things going going badly. And if you've been in business long enough, that's gonna ha that's gonna happen to you. Yep. It, it was it was sobering when I arrived in in Dallas to find a real estate community in collapse because I knew that the people who were there, many of which have come back and and had great success, were really smart. Yep. Like, don't fool yourself into thinking that someone who went through a, a real estate collapse is not smart, capable, and um, self-aware, because these people were. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business investing and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas not often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you by emailing us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts. Hey guys, it's Chris. Welcome to The Fort. I'm excited today to talk with a good friend and mentor of mine, Andrew Siegel. Andrew's from Houston, Texas. Um, he's the founder of Boxer Property Group that he founded in 1992. Boxer owns 15 million square feet of real estate around the country in office, resort hotels, retail centers. And Andrew's kind of captivated me in a lot of ways. We met through YPO. Um, Andrew's probably the best real estate operator I've met. Um, and there's a lot kind of behind that that I hope to unpack today. I'm not sure I'm even the best one in the room. Oh my gosh. Half of what we're working on right now is stuff that you've laid the, laid the road for, paved the road for. Um, he's got a law degree, um, but he's not a lawyer, but maybe he'll share why he got a law degree. Um, but without further ado, thanks for coming up to Fort Worth and chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with a little bit about who you are um, and kind of your path to, to today. So um, I started in real estate right after law school. Uh, I went through, uh, through college, law school right away, and I left the day before graduation, uh, got on a plane and went to Texas and very ill-advisedly bought a large empty office building because I thought I knew more than I did. Yeah. So that was on the uh, the Stemmons Freeway. It was 100,000 square feet. And I just had no idea what it was going to take to uh, to lease it up. Uh, I had a family history of being in in real estate, but the problem is that, that it was all sold when I was still very young. So I didn't really have any real life um, experience. Yep. Um, but we made it uh, with the help of uh, my brother, Justin, uh, and a lot of luck and a lot of uh, stretching out payments and, and begging for income. Yep. I actually used to, I used to pay the electric bill at the building at a uh, Hispanic grocery store. So I'd stand in line with everyone. Uh, this is when you, would, you could pay your electric bill. There was one utility and I would give them the check knowing that it wouldn't make it back to the utility for an extra four days versus putting it in the mail. Wow. 
Uh, so it was it was pretty tight. Um, but the building uh, the building worked out, and uh, I started calling people who I knew from college who uh, who had nice cars, <laughs> and that was my that was my next round of funding. Bought two buildings the next year, uh, four buildings the year after that, eight buildings the year after that, and then sixteen office buildings the next year. Before realizing I was in over my head. What year? When did this start? So it started in 1992. What was it, the world like then? The the world was was interesting. As I when when I arrived in in Dallas, it was like coming to a fraternity party on Sunday morning. Yep. Everybody was hungover. Didn't matter what the drink was. Nobody wanted one. All of the most experienced people in real estate, and there were some real giants of of the industry, had really gotten wiped out. Um, so it was it was a world, and it's hard to even think about it now, where where nobody wanted office buildings. So the first building I bought was ten dollars a square foot, uh, and and remember I was the highest bidder at that. And how did like how did that deal come about, and why did you choose Dallas? It was was that you already knew you were coming down to Dallas, and somebody just sent you a flyer of a deal, or why that building? Um, no, so I stopped. Um, you know, I stopped in Dallas because I had, I had been here once when I was, uh, when I was in law school and I, I, I thought, uh, that there would be a lot of opportunity here. There was all this infrastructure, but no one was buying buildings. And the first thing I did was look at giant tracts of land along the, uh, the toll, the toll road in Dallas. And thank God I didn't buy that because I'd be very rich right now. <laughs> I think I could have bought Frisco for, uh, you know, about a million dollars at the time. <laughs> Um, but, um, I focused on office buildings because they had a, um, they had a real high cost of, of running. So the, the, the price had really plunged. They had lost 90, 95% of their value. And this was from the savings and loan crisis of the late eighties. Yeah, it was, it was really, um, you know, I thought I would be buying a lot of things from the FDIC, but it turned out everyone got so excited about the auctions. I never bought one thing directly from them. Yep. So it was it was very often loans that had gone bad or people who had just gotten fed up uh you know after holding on to these buildings since the uh the late 80s. Just for that I'm fascinated by that one particular building what ended up making it a success did the market kind of get your back or what kind of turned uh, a negative into a positive? Well what we did at the time is we invented co-working but we didn't really know it. So I opened up a 110,000 square foot building for a 500 foot tenant. And we just let people camp wherever they, they were. We couldn't really afford to configure the space. So we would find something that fit. So it was kind of taking the apartment model and applying it to commercial office space. So you had all the things that people liked about apartments, diversity of the, the tenants, but none of the kids and none of the pools. But that wasn't the plan when you bought the building? You know, it was it was it was part of the um, it was part of the concept, but the the idea was the building is so cheap. I'm going to be able to massively undercut the market. Yep. And I did. I actually uh, did what I now think of as peeing in the well. Yep. I put a huge billboard. I mean, this 30 foot tall billboard in front of the the building that said four dollars and ninety cents per year full service. So I destroyed everybody else's ability to finance their buildings all around me. Uh, everybody wanted to know why they weren't getting that rate. And then like a gas station, as the building filled up, I just changed the first digit. You, when I first met you, 
you know, a lot of people look at credit as, you know, some public company that leases from you and you've kind of made a, not a career, but you've been very successful in kind of creating this kind of co-working light environment, really small tenants. And I can't remember exactly how you said it, but you said that's some of the best credit you could want because, you know, these people are putting their life on the line or it's a small business. Is that kind of what you meant by that? Did I daydream that you said that? No, no, no. So, so if you take, you know, if you ask a, a lender, you know, what you like about multifamily, oh. they'll start talking about a diversity of, of credit. They'll talk about not staking the whole reputation, not having a kind of uh, binomial um, uh, issue where if a tenant renews, the building su survives. If they don't, the building defaults. Also, uh, the fact that very often you don't have to redo the spaces every time they come and you're able to renew uh, renew tenants. There's, there's some other issues that have now come up is that the smaller tenants tend to use less parking, uh, you know, and that's become... That's become interesting. But the, the the bottom line is, what are all the things you love about multifamily? What are all the things you don't like about it? Now let's apply that to an office building. Yep. Way ahead of your time in that regard. You So then you go from a building, then two and four and eight and 16, and that's when you realized uh, you had gotten pretty big and had a lot going on. Um, through that process, were you the one out finding deals by the time you were at the year you bought 16 or were you starting to hire people and build a company or kind of where did you fall in the mix or a little bit of everything? I, I was hiring people, but what was interesting, I was hiring nobody with experience. Yep. Um, so the, the model at the time, and again, this is hard to, uh, this is hard to think about in, in today's world is we just used to make 50 to a hundred low offers on buildings without regard to what they were is yep. that we didn't bother underwriting them. We just said, if I could buy it for, for literally between 5 and $25 a foot, I'm going to be the low-cost provider. It was like a factory at, at the time. And that was purely just a byproduct of like where the market was at the time. Yeah, the market was, was interesting because the, the buyers weren't listening to what the sellers were saying. The sellers were saying, I want this deal to go down without a lot of work for me. I don't want to be retraded, and I want it to close on a certain date. Yep. And so what we would do is we'd go say, look, you're going to get everything you want except for one thing, price. So I'll close in seven days. Uh, I won't retrade. Uh, I'm not going to bother you at the uh, the closing table for, for adjustments for this and that, but I want my price. And very often um, the sellers had become what I would call inoculated as they had lost so many deals that they just didn't care anymore. They yep. had tested the market. Now the powers that be wanted to know who's going to close. Are you able to share at all how you had capital that could close in seven days? Is that something that anybody could do or people doing it the wrong way? I feel like every deal now takes 120 days and you need environmentals and you need lawyers and it's like impossible to close anything in seven days. Is that because of the times or did you just have a great partner that said, you know, I'll fund it and then we'll figure out how to finance it after we buy it or... Well, very, very quickly after I came to town, I met um, I met a fellow by the name of Jim Neal, who's now at Churchill Capital. And Jim was a great partner, but he was also the trust fund that I always deserved. Yeah. <laughs> so I just walked around as if I literally had the cash in my pocket. Yep. And that I was able to, I, I knew how buildings worked in a very granular way. I knew what the deal killers were, which at the time was were essentially structural 
issues or asbestos. Everything else was a disaster. So you didn't, you didn't, you never had to underwrite the rent roll. There was none. Yeah. Um, so he was able to line up the cash when things really got, when, when things really got going. And that, that allowed us to, um, expand exponentially for years. Has anything about your strategy changed from the early nineties to now we're at 2020? Well, my, my ability to buy has definitely changed. Yep. It's gone away. You haven't um, bought really since 2016. I, I, yeah, I really have not bought very much at all. So I'm, I'm in this kind of counter cyclical mode where I get very nervous before I should get nervous, but it kind of, it keeps me, keeps me alive. And you have the, I guess I always even talk to Jason about this. You kind of have the fortune of being able to not have to buy to kind of keep the staff and the company run. I mean, a lot of people are built on having to transact until you kind of hit that scale. Yeah. I, I never, I always played for the back end and not the, uh, not the fees when I was, when I was doing deals. So it was kind of like an oath of poverty going into things and you had to be prepared to do, you know, to start the way I started, which was a 1976 Ford LTD and a room at the Red Roof Inn for $19 a night that I shared, of course, because I couldn't afford the whole, <laughs> the whole thing. Um, it's like co-living. It was, it was like co-living. This is my, my brother and I lived in a room that was so small. We had to move his bed to open the door. Um, that was, uh, that was quite a scene, but you know, I, I just always, for some reason had the discipline to do two, uh, two things is, is not buy, uh, which is very hard when you see all your friends making a fortune and everyone you sell a building to doubles it in value for a while. And also, you know, kind of a little bit later in my career is I just set things up so that I could cut expenses very quickly. And that was a, that was a very interesting oath of, of no personal obligations, uh, which is harder than it, than it sounds. That means like literally nothing that you do in your entire life as a personal obligation for more than a month to basically your credit card with and the exception like, of my marriage, of course, which yes. is a much longer obligation. Infinite. <laughs> so you lived obviously through the crash of 08 and then was, was there a bad crash in Texas, uh, during nine 11? Was there a real estate crash that you really felt? It, it, it wasn't really bad in, in nine 11. 08 was a, was a train wreck. Did you see it coming? I mean, I'm, well, I, I, I did in that I, I had sold virtually everything I owned, um, in 05. And why you just got, is there, was there a, was there a, a data point? Was it just a feeling of reading a lot and you kind of felt that way or like, what was, what was the final domino to let, let's sell it all? There were, there were, there was kind of a big short moment, you know, that happened I, ironically in Las Vegas. I was at a, a real estate convention with, uh, with my partner, Jim, uh, we got into a cab and I, you know, I like to kind of chat up the cab drivers. I've actually hired a bunch of Uber drivers now who work for our, oh, really? uh, our company. I treat it like an interview. So I'm asking this guy in Las Vegas, what, what's up? What's your story? And he goes, oh, well, I'm, I'm a real estate investor. I buy and sell houses. So I'm like, what? what? You buy and sell houses? Like, how many houses do you have? He goes, I've got five. And I walk through the economics of the houses with them and they're horrible. It's like horrible <laughs> economics. <laughs> And then he said something that, that really struck me. I mean, this was my moment. He said, I would have bought more, but the speculators are driving up the price. So I'm like, you're a cab driver. Yeah. <laughs> you could say this in Las Vegas to, to, to people. I'm like, you're, you're blaming the speculators? Yeah. Like you're saying the speculators are driving you out of the real estate business? This is insane. Yeah. And, and we just got very nervous. We realized that we weren't willing to pay what people were asking for property, so we should turn around 
and liquidate. When you liquidated, did that mean that you had to lay off a lot of people or did you liquidate? Again, having to make that decision is is tough. I mean, if you have a big real estate portfolio, a lot, like how did you kind of strategize how that was all going to play out? So the, the interesting thing is when you're liquidating and the market is zooming up, which it was in 2005. Yeah. Everybody's leaving you anyway. Right. You just have to wait. Like, yeah. leave the door open. Uh, everyone will walk out. So what we did is we got down to about 4 million square feet, which was kind of like pure muscle. Like, that's 1% body fat, basically. And yep. that was what we needed to keep our key people alive and sustained for for the next big opportunity, which which I thought was there because everyone in real estate thinks everything's cyclical. Yep. So then you sell kind of 05, 06, and then you're just kind of sitting on your hands waiting for whatever's coming to come. Yes. I, w- I was, so I, d- I did two things is I turned inward and worked on process. Yep. Like I just said, okay, I'm going to use this time to build process and continue doing what I normally do, which is pretend I'm 10 times my size. Yep. You know, that's been, uh, that's, that served me well. And I got in tremendous shape. <laughs> I started yeah. running, lifting weights. I was running 10 miles. Um, <laughs> I, I had nothing to do. Yep. So 08 hits, is it, was it way worse than you thought? Was it what you thought? I, I kind of thought it was going to be a little worse. Yeah. But it was, there, there was a part of me that was saying, I told you so. Yeah. There's a part of me that was kind of horrified because we didn't know how low it was going to go. There was a time when I called a friend of mine at Credit Suisse and the stock market had gone to 6,500, you know, so it had basically gone, lost half of its value. And I called him, I said, you realize it hasn't lost half of its value. It lost 25% of the market stack. Because if I look at debt and equity as just kind of man-made things, it could go down another 25% very, um, very easily. So I cut everything that I could. I kind of sheltered in place. We were very liquid. We had virtually no debt. I think we still had like maybe $20 a square foot of debt on our portfolio that we just couldn't pay off. And we just waited and waited and waited. And then finally, the last two days of 2009, it was like a gun went off and we started buying. And we we bought more than we had ever bought before for years and years after that. Oh, man, I could, we could do a whole episode on just these couple of years. So 08 happens. I'm just trying to, I've never been through that at the degree. I owned some rental houses in 08 around TCU, but that was kind of a insulated market. So 08 hits. On one hand, you're probably like, yes, I knew this was coming. On another hand, there had to be kind of like a, oh shit, even though I knew it was happening, it's happening. What between that happening and the second day, second to last day of 09 was like, okay, it's time. Like, let's start buying. So it takes, it, ta- it you know, after a recession, things don't just start selling immediately. Yep. They take, it takes about 18 months for things to rot- wash through the system. And that means that somebody uh, may have a building, but it still may have leases. So the day of the recession, the leases are still kind of paying then you get into kind of the circle of disaster is that they they stop, they realize that the new rents that they get won't cover their mortgage. So I'm not going to go spend a lot of money where I don't even get my money back for three years and my mortgage is up in two years. So the building goes into kind of this, this circle of death. Then the lenders take it back. 
then the lenders come to the realization that they're not going to get all their money back. Then they go through a couple of sales that don't go through, and now they are prime. They are they have given up. They have inoculated themselves. They can take any deal and walk away think, knowing that they did the right thing. The coolest part of this whole situation was the special servicers, this is in the securitized world, were the same people who used to buy the B pieces when I securitized my first round of debt. So I knew I knew them all. And they all knew me and trusted me. So I had a, a virtual supermarket of, of deals that no one else could uh, close. So you were just, hey, show me everything on your books, and I'm just going to start cherry picking and making you the lowest possible offer I can make. Yeah. So when, 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 sometimes I would literally just show up in their office and ask them like uh, LNR in, um, in, in Miami and say, yeah. what is the most annoying thing that you own? And they would always have something. And One of I them would, was a mall here in Fort Worth, wasn't it? A mall here. Well, yeah. So that was, that was an LNR, but okay. it was uh, someone um, somewhere, somewhere else. Yeah. But then I would like leave the office, drive to the airport, get on a plane and go look at the asset, make an offer normally in the parking lot. And you, you were liquid and partners with Jim, you still had seven day capital, even when nobody else, you know, had any, I mean, having liquidity then was probably your best friend. Yeah. So not, not only, not only that, we had massive amounts of, of capital that we could deploy. So much that even at our height in this last thing, we only got up to a third of it. I wish that I was set up then as I am now, because I could have bought 10 times the amount. I just, I couldn't handle the inflow. There were th three, sometimes close to 4 million square feet a year coming in. We had to process it. It was, it was like the Syria refugee crisis of buildings. Yeah. You know. <laughs> okay. So you are buying like crazy was it the same strategy back from 92 we're just going to offer on things anything that we can buy for 10 to 20 bucks a foot or whatever it was so we went we went a lot further up the capital stack is is you know i kind of realized that some of the nicer projects had much more um you know much more upside um so so i i changed a lot of the um the class of the things that I was buying. And then at, at that time, we were also kind of getting introduced to a new type of class, which was, uh, I've heard it referred to as X. I think someone uh, said that in um, about buildings in Austin, where, you know, it's a cool building, it's got exposed brick, like, you don't think of it as class A or class B or class C anymore, right? You know, some of the coolest buildings are could be 50 to 100 years old. Yep. So well, I guess my first question is, if you're just inhaling three or four million square feet a year uh, and you're buying them in seven days, you're clearly not, you know, doing these crazy Excel models and these long winded finance. You're kind of looking at it, doing almost napkin math. And it's so obvious it either works or it doesn't. Or like from the day that guy at LNR said that asset's a huge pain. What's that seven days look like? You get yeah. on the plane, you go see it. Napkin math is too sophisticated. Okay. I, <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. No, this is this is way less sophisticated than napkin math. Uh, you know, very, very often they were just such obvious deals. And they and they they look, most deals we didn't get. Yeah. So it's not like the whole market was dumping deals. But if you listen to what the seller was saying and you gave them almost everything that they asked for except for price, you got a lot of deals. 
the auctions, uh, auction.com was also a great deal of fun is that we spent, we spent days sitting, watching the auctions, trying to determine whether the robot was bidding instead of another party and who had looked at the building. We used to go ask the, the maintenance guys who's seen the building. So we knew how many bidders there, there could possibly be. Um, the, the auctions were definitely fun. Those, those were also a uh, 30 day close. So it gave me a lot of time. Is, is it, uh, is it a hindsight's 2020, but I'm assuming, you know, looking back now, there's probably more you wish you had bought. I mean, pretty much regret everything. Yeah. There are, there are streets I can't drive down. Yeah. There are cities I can't go to. It's just too painful. Then maybe an interesting question would just be hindsight's 2020. But at the time, why were those no's? They were just a little more price per square foot or they just weren't so glaringly obvious or why was, why was something a no? So sometimes it was a flat out mistake. Like yeah. I, could, I could talk about some things that I did that even then, there, there, there are a lot of things, look, I could say, hey, who knew where the market was going? Yeah. But even then, I made some very critical mistakes I'm going to try not to make again. Number one was not buying things in... New York and Los Angeles or San Francisco. And it was kind of interesting because those are cities that I know on a personal basis very well. I'm very comfortable in them. I know the real estate markets, but I just never could get to the price. And the mistake that I made was not experimenting. It's not just saying, look, I'm not going to bet everything on Manhattan, but I should at least buy one building in Manhattan when they're 150 bucks a foot. It's not going to ruin me. I, w- I would have learned a tremendous amount from that. And so the next go round, maybe you will experiment in other cities. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we were out in LA, I guess, a few months ago and we were driving around and I can't remember what you said, but you've been unbelievably successful in a ton of markets around the country. And you were just like, I've never been able to pull the trigger in LA. It's just always seemed too expensive. And like decade after decade, it just kind of keeps going up. Yeah, and the and 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 the thing was that I never said I'm going to try it. Like in other words, I like I buy a building; it's one percent, you know, of my portfolio. I should have experimented more, and I'm I'm upset with myself for not doing that. We've talked a lot about how you bought assets. Um, when you buy three or four million square feet, you're inhaling it that quick, and these are buildings with probably busted leases, or you know, it's just a mess. And you're closing on them in seven to thirty days. Are you kind of showing up for the first time once you own it with your team, saying, "All right, let's figure out exactly what we got"? And were those taking years to work out, or were you just going to tenants and redoing leases, or saying, "You know, we'll let you go for free if you'll just leave"? Or you know, what does that look like? Well, so so it it happens very quick. Yep. Nobody goes because we needed any tenant we could get. Right. Um, but you know, at the time we had five or six full time attorneys on our staff. We had people who focused on budgets and constructions and financial analysts. So while while I looked like this very simple company from the outside with a yellow sign and a catchy phone number, um, in the back it was it was a, a very tightly regimented group with an extraordinarily vertical uh, competency. Yep. Well, that's what I kind of wanted to get in next. I said at the beginning, the the operations and what you've been able to do on the back end kind of behind, you know, what might seem simple is that's what I think initially I was at a YPO deal with you. You said something and we ended up chatting for a couple hours and so many of the 
pains that I have as a smaller operator with, you know, 20 employees and you had not just answers for, but you had had such deep thought into how things were done. When did you start becoming an amazing operator? And when did it go from being like, hey, let's just buy a bunch of deals and make a bunch of money to let's do that and be the best operator we could possibly be? Because I truly, the, the, the thought that you've put into running real estate assets is, is beyond anything I've, I've experienced. Well, the, well the, the, you know, there was kind of before 2010 yeah. and after 2010. And before 2010, I felt like I was, I was like a lot of other people. I was kind of an agile guy who could spot a deal and move quick and see things that other people couldn't see. But like, I also realized I was a dime a dozen. Yeah. Like there were, there were a lot of people and there were a lot of people who were much smarter than me and had better vision and, you know, better ability to pick projects. So I kind of, I, 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 I lived with that realization that I was the JV in a lot of ways. And then after after 2010, there was this this way of seeing things that that I, I now call organization organization. Mm-hmm. In other words, how do you take an organization and organize it? Where do you put all your stuff? Where do you put all your ideas? And this this was uh, driven by uh, my brother Justin, who who was able to kind of take this concept that that, that we shared, this way of looking at things, and turn it into software. And, and, and then we got into process. Once, we, once process became permanent, then it was worth working on. Mm-hmm. You know, other, otherwise, it just felt like Groundhog Day. How does a process become permanent? A process becomes permanent when you have a place to record it. Okay. So, for example, you know, in ancient history, people would give lectures and people would listen to the lectures and they would use the lectures and then they would give lectures. But it was like... It really wasn't worth spending a lot of time writing down a lecture, knowing that it was immediately going to um, dissipate, like once you were finished saying it. Whereas if you wrote a book, the book would go into a library. People could read the book for centuries, even a thousand years, and people could build build upon that. And we used to we used to have libraries in our companies. We had file rooms. People would keep minutes at meetings. They would. Uh, send out acknowledgments that that were that were that were in triplicate, so you could see, make sure everyone had was on the page. We used to sign forms, and then we got seduced by Bill Gates, and we stopped doing all that. So I'm sitting there in 2009, effectively realizing that virtually everything is in someone's mind, or on an Excel spreadsheet on their C drive in their computer. And that we just, we've lost our history. No one really knows who's agreed to what. No one knows if this, and remember I was, you know, getting into past a thousand people pretty soon. No one knew what the most current uh, checklist was. So all of a sudden we had a single place of truth spot, single place of truth. And, And that turned into single place of tasks. So when I would make a decision, when I would decide to do something, I could make sure that it was replicated everywhere. And that made it feel like it was more valuable for me to think about these things. And that is what's known as stimmins. And for people that have listened to past episodes where I've spoken a lot on on stimmins and what we call it our company, FOS, Andrew and his brother Justin invented or founded kind of stimmins, which is this software that's spot, a single place of truth. Is it harder to build a real estate company or a technology software platform? So I, I, I think part of it is 
you know, the, the, the technology platform seems very simple when you look at it. It's kind of like looking at an iPhone and going, it only has one button on it. It doesn't, it takes a lot of complexity to make things simple. Yep. But once it's simple, the, the challenge is to get people to realize that this is the way we're going to do things. You know, I, I think of it almost like the Gutenberg press. It's like Gutenberg allowed people to publish things very quickly and very inexpensively compared to the way we used to do it, which is either just say it to each other or write it down and have that person rewrite it. But he didn't really write the stories that went into it or the histories or the philosophies or the manuals or all of the things that we went on to to use the press for. And that's that's what I think is so fun about Stemmons is it's a it's an it's a top operating system. It's a place to put all your stuff. But the the most enriching thing is is I'm now able to watch people use it in much more creative ways than we could even we could ever think about. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing we've learned, not just with Stimmons, but anything in a small business, is it's one thing to you know pay for it and have it downloaded on your computer and do a 30 minute training session, but to fundamentally change how everybody actually goes throughout their workday. It's not a five training session deal. It, it takes a year, two, three years to constantly kind of keep conditioning. And we've been on it a year and a half. And not that we use it totally different than what we did the day we started. We've just kind of, you learn more and we've made it our own in a lot of ways. We do things exactly how you do some things. We do things some totally different. You know, we just had four people just start at the company in the last two weeks and you know, they start and they're probably expecting what you get at most, which is Microsoft Word and Outlook and Excel and some server files and maybe a few. But now they spend the first 30 or 60 days kind of saying like, take everything you once knew and just put it on the shelf for a little bit and kind of focus on this next way of doing things. And it's amazing how uh, how quickly people will adapt. It's really hard for people to adapt when nobody in the company has done it. So to even get those first like three or four power users and then it kind of adopts is if you're joining a team that's already on it, it's easier to get that person to adapt than it was to kind of get everybody. And that's kind of a rant on implementing enterprise software across the company. I I, I think it is, but what's interesting is that new people take to it sometimes faster than the old people because it it replicates a lot of the way that they run their world through their their iPhone. Yep. You know, and that's a, uh, you know, we, we, we used to, we being people who were running businesses, used to complain bitterly about the fact that people weren't technology workers, they weren't prepared to go into the workforce. But no one ever said, yes, they are. They're carrying computers in their pockets. Let's go to where they are. Let's yep. go to a unified system that, that can be made intuitive and, and make them subject matter experts uh, through that. You're now in markets all over the country. What's the best kind of, maybe not what's the best market in the country, but are there any markets that stand out that will look a lot better in 10 years than they do now? And is Texas the best state in the country still, or are there other opportunities? Well, I I think that Texas is the best for many reasons, but I think we've got to be aware of this push and pull of urbanization. Is that that we're we're using, and if if I just go into office space, uh, yeah. you know, for example, is that we're putting more people into less office space all the time, and in the suburbs we have a problem because we have limited parking, so we just can't do it. So you go to a place like New York or London, where the 
the buildings may cost three times what they cost in Texas, but they're putting three times the people in the buildings. So from a user's point of view, it's pretty, it's pretty efficient. That's, that's something that we need to, um, to, to, to think about. And then there are, there are things that could very quickly interrupt that like viruses. Um, you know, I, I can't control the coronavirus in Grand Central Station or on Market Street in downtown, uh, you know, San Francisco. Uh, those kind of things may make the suburbs look a lot more appealing in the future. Because in the suburbs, there's not as many big groupings of people or or why? Well, so d- density drives value right. virtually everywhere in real estate. Yeah. I mean, there's just no, there's from, from the slums of India, if you go into the, the giant slums in Bombay and see what dwellings cost per square foot, not much to look at, but very expensive per square foot. Yep. But density could become a big problem for us. Um, in the future, if we keep having these potential pandemics, um, the the good news about density is that they solve lots of problems. They're very efficient. They're very friendly to the environment, and they allow you to use space massively more efficiently. Are you a believer in driverless cars, or you know, back to the parking issue in the suburbs? Is that going to happen anytime soon? Is it something that's on your radar at all? Um, so it is. I'm, a, I'm actually a um, an investor in a startup car company. Okay. So I, I I think about it. I think about it a lot. I actually took my my eldest son once to go see Country Club Plaza in Kansas City. And the interesting thing about Country Club Plaza in Kansas City is it was the first retail development that was built, I think, in the world that anticipated people arriving by automobile. <laughs> So someone came and they they looked at the thing and go, okay, the future is going to be automobile. They're not going to be driving a horse. What should retail look like? Well, it can't be in the downtown because there's no, not enough parking. So we're going to move it to the suburbs. We're going to put the parking around it. It was very interesting. I said, now, 120 years later, we need to think about what does a world look like where not everyone is arriving. Maybe nobody is arriving in their own in their own car. So I'm not as convinced that a driverless car will be functional outside of a, of a highway. I think you could kind of enter I-35 and, and drive to Canada in a driverless car, but, but driving through a parking garage in downtown Fort Worth is going to be a real challenge. They're going to, um, they're going to need the municipalities to really clean up the roads. Like you can't have branches in front of stop signs. You can't have uh, old lines next to new lines or construction cones in certain places. Cars not going to be able to navigate around that very quickly. But I, but I, I, I do think, um, you know, density, public transportation is going to lead to massive value in uh, the real estate that's on it. Totally random question, but something you mentioned earlier, you said you've been hiring uh, Uber drivers. Is that because you have an opportunity to chat with them for an hour or however long you're in the car with them? Or is there something special about an Uber driver that you want to hire? Well, it's not, it's not just Uber drivers. First of all, I, I, I believe that there's something relevant to me in almost anyone. Yep. You know, and if you, if you're just walking down the street, it's very easy to dismiss people who you're passing. Just like if you walk into a modern art gallery and you look around, you go, oh, that's not for me and turn around and walk out. If you give a person or a piece of art 15 to 20 seconds to see what's relevant to you about it, you'll be surprised. And 
Uber rides. I have a uh, an audience who can't leave, <laughs> you know, and I find I've just I've always found it very interesting to uh, to talk to them about what they do, why they're they're doing it. Typically, they're available. Of course, they're available. They're driving Uber for the most part. Yeah. So we've had some great hires. One of my favorite Uber stories um, was an artist. So I asked him if he could drive me to the airport tomorrow, and I told him to bring art with him. And now, now we're friends, and I hang his art in my house. Oh, really? Yeah, we were having a conversation probably last year about just doing market research would be to kind of either pay an Uber driver to A, go around the city and kind of collect data points, some things that you might have, or B, maybe have an Uber driver come into your office and be able to ask some questions about like, you know, what time do you, you, what's the most demand on 7th Street? What are the best nights? What are the worst times to drive? What parts of the city do you love to drive in? What do you, they probably have so much unique perspective. They have, they do have a lot of unique perspective that you could only get from somebody that's just constantly cruising the city. And not only doing that, but talking to guys like you, they could be like, yeah, I was riding with this guy, Andrew, the other day. And he told me that, you know, he's buying office in this side of town and this is why. And that, I mean, they are just kind of these vacuums of information. You don't really understand it. So uh, we were just kind of saying, maybe we do a project where we, you know, pay somebody a hundred dollars to go collect some data that only an Uber driver could collect. Even if that was go to seventh street for the night or whatever part of downtown. And when you're in the car with these folks, maybe just ask these type of questions. And once you've had 10 people and we have a good kind of uh, data set, bring back what they all said and we'll kind of go from there. So again, kind of random, but cool. India, you, that was one of the first things we talked about when we first met. You have built a, a workforce over in India. How did you know to go to India? And I know it's been beneficial for a lot of reasons, but what got the whole thing started to start opening up shop in India? So my, my, my parents kind of developed a love uh, in me for India. They took me there for the first time in 1978 when I was 11 years old. So I always loved it. And I love the food. I love the culture. I love the people. I love the fact that it's the largest group of English-speaking people anywhere by far, by multiples. And there's a kind of a friendliness there that was that was very appealing. I was talking to um, to a friend of mine who's in the uh, the tax contesting business, Pat O'Connor, Connor and Associates. And um, he said, I've got 500 people in India. So I said, I'm coming to see them. So I got on a plane, I went, and he gave me free reign in, in the office. And I walked around and I talked to people. Um, and I had a, um, I'd had a little experience before. I had someone from my accounting department who was deported. He had originally been from Pakistan. He didn't keep up with his appointments. They sent him away to Pakistan and we gave him a high-speed internet connection and a computer and he worked for us for 10 years from there. So that was, I had had this, this little experience in outsourcing. Then when I went to see Pat's operation in India, I was blown away by the quality of the people, by the quality of the work. And I realized that if they were integrated into a company and not outsourced, so this isn't someone who you send a work to, they perform a service on the work and send it back to you, but actually like an employee who's just in a different, their, their cube is in a different place. It was really something. We ended up coming to think of it as the human cloud. Yeah. You know, in other words, why do I need a server in my office? If I'm the only one who kind of manipulates it, it would be a lot better if it's somewhere else 
that makes more sense and um, costs less, quite frankly. Yep. Then we realized that that our 300 people in India gave us the opportunity to run 24 hours. So it's been a huge um, game changer. I think uh, last we figured it cut about $15 million off of our expenses, and it's been fun. I've been there uh, 11 times so far. That's awesome. Yeah, we have, I think we have three or four people now, all in accounting. Yep. It's been it's been great. Is there somebody or some words of wisdom or some advice that you've been given um, over your career that stands out or something that if you had been told, maybe you wouldn't be here today? Well, probably a, a lot, a lot, you know, so I'm, I'm a, uh, I ask tons of questions. Um, you know, I was asking you what you were paying for your buildings. Just, uh, just, just walking here. Um, I'm a, I'm, I'm a sponge of what other people are doing. So I, like everything comes from somewhere else. Some of it I can remember and, and credit some of it. I can't, you know, there, there, there are some basic, tenants, um, you know, that, that, that I've realized have been very important. And one, one of them is to fly with a map, you know, like it's very exciting to go fast and go high and everything's going very well. But if you don't have information flowing back to you from your enterprise, I see people running into, running into trouble. And sometimes that's very basic things like what is your cash position every day or every week? You know, these are these are like your blood pressure and your 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 temperature. It's the first thing that a doctor looks at. And, and the second the second thing I'll, I'll I'll say, which I've I've heard from a lot of people, but really resonated with me, is allocation of focus. Is that I feel like we always have more hours in the day. We can always go out and raise more money, but the thing that that we cannot do is increase our our focus, and we have to decide where to spend it very wisely. And then the last, the last thing, uh, you know, I heard from a, uh, from a banker who I admire, uh, very much is, um, he said, I'm a pessimist, but I wasn't born that way. Yeah. Which basically just means experience. Yes. It it means that you should have a healthy appreciation for the downside and for things going, going badly. And if you've been in business long enough, that's gonna ha- that's gonna happen to you. Yep. It, it was it was sobering when I arrived in in Dallas to find a real estate community in collapse because I knew that the people who were there, many of which have come back and and had great success, were really smart. Yep. Like, don't fool yourself into thinking that someone who went through a a real estate collapse is not smart, capable, and um, self aware because these people were. Is there anything? On the notion of focus, what are you focused on right now? I mean, at this point in your career, what grabs your attention? Well, definitely, you know, two two things from a software point of view. Process. Yep. Like I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm like the kid in this, the 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 seventh, sixth sense. I forget which sense it was. Yeah. You know, who only sees dead people. Like yeah. I see lack of process everywhere I go, um, and I I see the world in terms of. Uh, you know, a potential for high organization and low organization out there on a, on a building and real estate and kind of business basis. I'm very excited about the convergence of different disciplines within real estate of hospitality and office of hotel and retail of, um, online and offline 
I think we're going to stop talking about real estate in terms of segregated uses and start to think about it more. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, um, a project right now to make work residences. So in other words, what would a residence look like where people would show up in the day and work in the space and then leave and then it becomes your your home or loft or apartment again? So that would be like a, a room that you turn the furniture around and all of a sudden a desk turned into a bed or what do you mean? Well, let's just say I have a bedroom, but I have a living room that's also a co-working space. Right. So in other words, every day, three or four people show up at work. They work in this space. There may be a separate bathroom for them, but I'm using a, a common kitchen. Um, like, why do we leave these giant residences in the morning, leave them vacant all day, go to a place and then and then come back? You know, back in, you know, the artists in New York and the startups and everything, they very often worked out of their houses, but apartment complexes and housing developments, things don't don't really acknowledge the fact like here's a house that needs seven parking spots. Yeah. We don't we don't think about that, but think about how efficient uh that could be, or an apartment complex where people can key in um, who don't live there and and be there even when the resident is not there. So it's kind of, we're, the world doesn't have a lack of supply or space. It just has a really inefficient way of using it. Well, I, I think it just makes for a much more richer environment. Yeah. Like the apartment complexes today that people are building, yourself included, they're like resorts. Yep. Wouldn't it be fun if you work there? I love it. So convergence. Convergence. So to tail off that, then if you had to make a prediction, if 10 years from now, we'll come back and do a, another episode and you had to make a prediction of like something crazy. It doesn't even have to be real estate related where the world will be or something that 10 years from now that may, maybe other people wouldn't believe you about. What, what's your prediction? Ho hopefully it'll be in person and not a seance. Yeah, well. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> that might be your prediction right there. I, I, I think we're we're going to see a real blurring of the lines and the people who are able to, like right now, as real estate developers, we tend to outsource a lot of things from management. So a, a large landlord will rent space to a co-working space. So in other words, they realize, oh, I can't run this, so I'm going to just punt or I'm going to bring in food service because... We're a real estate manager. We can't be running food and beverage or events or something like that. Um, ten, 10 years from now, we're going to see massively dynamic operators that, that bring these disciplines together. So that you're just kind of in the services and real estate industry. Yeah. So we, we won't think about like an apartment complex and a hotel as being necessarily two different things. Right. In other words, they will be a mesh of both and it will be in constant flux. Apartments will be lived in and then they'll be on Airbnb for six months and this will be kind of normal. We'll have to re, you know, reinvent things like access and parking and, and deliveries and, and maintenance um, and security. But um, it's going to be very, uh, very interesting. We're, we're already seeing people working in retail spaces. Um, they're there. You go into a hotel lobby. Now it looks like an office, yep. um, going on, you go into an office, you know, it looks like a lounge. Yep. Do you have any opinion on your, you live in Houston where there are no zoning laws, but there's a big argument, 
you know, especially in places like California where it's impossible to build anything anymore. It takes three or four years to get, you know, just an approval to build something. And then you're in Houston where there is no zoning laws that were, there's light at the end of the tunnel that some type of restrictions will be lifted off the world. I think there's an argument. The reason why things are so expensive is because it takes one forever to build something and there's just the amount of available land to build density you know, is is constrained in a lot of markets because of archaic zoning laws or whatever those might be. Uh, I don't really know exactly what my question is other than are we going to see more oversight by the government in real estate development or less as time goes by? Well, California actually did some very interesting things recently is they, uh, in Los Angeles, they removed neighborhoods' ability to object to multifamily projects that were on public transit lines. Okay. So it's very interesting. They just said, look, we need, if if I could build an apartment complex on a line that goes to downtown, I'm going to take 300 cars off the road. Yep. Like we just have to do it. And I realize the neighbors don't want this, but too bad. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, we're doing this. Density is much more green. You know, when we, when we, we, we think about, we're all, we're all going to be thinking in terms of ESG. You know, if, if 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 someone's not thinking of those terms, ESG, then 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 you're going to have to. Like every company is going to have a rating. We're going to have to defend what we're doing in terms of those things. You know, and and this 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 is the the environment, social issues, and governance. Um, you know, which relates to things like like zoning. Yep. So I'm hoping that the environmentalists will attack zoning. And allow much more, uh, much more density. It's much more friendly for the um, for the environment. Yep. Um, and California has some kind of green shoots about about doing it, but I'm not holding my breath there. We haven't gotten into you know where the market is today, and we don't really have to to go totally into it. Um, you did stop buying in 2016 for the most part. It's now 2020. Ironically, the stock market's down 10% this week or close to it. But do you have any comment on maybe what the next 24 months will look like? We have an election this year. I know you th- you think about it. Obviously, you've successfully kind of made your way through the last one. Just anything that maybe a listener might think about that they don't already read in the news every single day? Well, first of all, I did something very different in this cycle than I did the last cycle. The last cycle, I sold virtually everything. This time I put long-term debt on things because I am an optimist about the long-term of owning property in places like Texas and Phoenix and Denver, Atlanta. These are places where most of my holdings uh, are in Houston, of course. So I didn't want to I didn't want to let go, but I didn't want to expose myself to um, to the to the market. So I'm very concerned. Obviously, I've been wrong for a long time, but anyone who's listening to this who's never heard me before is going to maybe think I'm smart. I've still got a shot with them because <laughs> uh, they, they haven't heard this story for five years. But I think we're going to have a very large, very deep, very profound recession. I think it's going to be driven by interest rates, by the overexpansion of the money supply. I've been a Milton Friedman disciple and and fanatic, uh, you know, since I was in single digits. And I think that, that if we go back to uh, the things that he was saying that led him to win the Nobel Prize, which you think they would take away from him now because what, what it doesn't seem to be playing out, but 
when we get there, we're going to have to prepare for a world with very high interest rates where money is, uh, you know, worth less and less and less and cap rates massively, massively change. Um, it's a, it's a very startling thing. And anyone who thinks that there's no inflation right now needs to talk to someone who's building something because they would tell you that it's more expensive than last year and more expensive than the year before and more expensive than the year before. And if we really do have inflation, then we will have high interest rates. They're a by inflation is a, is a byproduct of interest or a component of interest essentially. And when we do have interest rates that match the steady increase in costs, we're going to have trouble um, adjusting. Over the long term, we'll be okay, but it'll be a very rocky four or five years. Is that like, I was just going to say, is that a slow kind of gradual thing or it's just a spike or? I think it's going to be a spike. I think that there's going to be a realization of something in, you know, something very specific is that the Fed does not set interest rates. They set a rate. They set a rate called the Fed funds, uh, the the uh, the discount uh, the the discount rates, which is the rate at which banks borrow from the Fed uh, only when they're in trouble. But the average balance is virtually nothing. So we're 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 getting excited about them setting a rate that no one actually uses effectively. Um, and when we realize that the Fed cannot control interest rates, just like the Federal Reserve Bank of Argentina can't, and the Federal Reserve Bank of Nigeria can't, and the Federal Reserve Bank of India can't. Uh, we're in for a wild, we're in for a wild ride. That's depressing. Yeah. Well, I hope it, I'm wrong. No, but yeah, I think <laughs> I read something the other day. If if like points, or if the interest rate, if interest rates went up two percent right now, like the world would lose all of its equity, basically. Yes. Yeah, so so we're I I, I call it two percent from oblivion. Yeah. You know, if you're as old as I am, you remember like you know, rates for real estate were eight to 10% and, and you had to kind of live within that, that, that means, but like now we're living in a world where you could borrow three, 3% and 4%. It's totally distorted, um, the market and it, and it doesn't reflect what's going on with inflation. We're printing tremendous amounts of money as a country. We're issuing an, debt that's so big that no one even talks about it anymore. Yep. The Democrats don't, the Republicans don't. Um, we're going to have to pay for this and it's going to be a massive devaluation of the money and the Fed cannot control that. Well, on that note, you had said last time we spoke and I, I you said, I'm uh, refinancing all of my stuff. I'm putting long-term really cheap debt on it. And then you said it will be seen as an asset if that, uh, you know, market condition that you just talked about happened. What did you mean by that? So what, what, what I meant is that if interest rates go to 8% and you've got a loan at 3%, that loan has a tremendous amount of, uh, of value. If you can assign it to somebody. Yes. Or just operating your building in a world where everyone else is paying 10% um, and I'm paying 3 Right. I'm basically, to the extent that I'm competing with them on a level playing field, I'm sweeping the difference. So that would be a 7% return on the equity portion of my real estate. It's a giant advantage. Yep. Well, I, I always think it's super interesting to hear kind of your uh, perspective on that. Um, yeah, it's not a, a great 
kind of picture to look at. Um, at the same time, you know, if you just look at history, like something's going to happen at some point, how big or bad or what, we don't know. But you seem to be pretty settled in on how bad it could get and you, you don't seem to be too bothered by it. Well, I'm I'm very happy being wrong. Yeah. It's awesome, you know, to continue with this thing. And I don't really wish this yeah. uh, on anyone. But it's interesting that a lot of people now have been in this 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 upturn for their careers and they just don't remember what it felt like when no one wanted anything. Yep. Is there anything, and to kind of close the loop on this, is there anything about the way the world runs today that you see that you could say, well, it, it might kind of be different this time? No. No. The other, the other thing, uh, you said the inflation the you've told me this always the bundle of goods if anybody wants to see if inflation's real or not just go look at a big mac at mcdonald's uh it's like the perfect combination of american goods uh, i think is what you said is it yeah so it, it, the economist magazine famously for years has used the big mac to look at relative efficiency between different countries right as they go look at what does a big mac cost in american dollars here and there and you could kind of see their their relative cost to produce this item and 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 serve it. But the thing I love about the Big Mac is it's it's one of the few things that we use exactly the same way we used it in the 1950s. It just has not changed. And it's this this it's this really elegant bundle of transportation and commodities and labor and rent and and feed and you know all sorts of um, advertising, um, all of these things are baked into it. And when you look at the price of a Big Mac, it has risen steadily um, over over the years. There's a great chart. If you look at Big Mac versus CPI on uh, on Google, you'll see a chart that will that that is shocking. And and to me, that is, if you're convinced that there's inflation, then you should be convinced that interest rates will go up. Yep. And if one more person tells me that big screen TVs are getting cheaper, I'll scream <laughs> because they're still getting cheaper in Nicaragua and in Brazil and other places where they have massive inflation. So I don't want to hear about technology. It's not about that. It's about the money supply um, increasing at a rate that's higher than the rate that the economy is, is growing. And that's inflation. And inflation will lead to high interest rates, period. Or as Milton Friedman said, from the grave, always and everywhere. I'm gonna I'm gonna end on a on a high note. Um, cannabis, gotta, huh? <laughs> cannabis. <laughs> that would be that would be a high note. One thing you're really big into art now. When we were in LA, you were showing me art. I'm I'm really not into it. Have you always been into it? And why are you into it? Well, I've I've been a uh, I've been a fan of it. You know, and I like. Um, I like ironically making it, um, you know, in our, in our buildings, when we got into co-working, we realized that we needed about 10,000 pieces of art. So we can't go to a gallery and say, give me 10,000 pieces of art. So you have to, at some point, manufacture it. And that's been really fun project with my, uh, um, with my brother and I, um, you know, kind of designing things and replicating them in large, uh, in large groups. I also I also love the chase. I, I there were a couple of artists that my uh, my elder son Sam and I decided that we were going to find 
one of their their pieces and um um and 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 buy it and that was that was kind of fun kind of making low offers kind of treating treating the art somewhat like an office building not just for any artist but yeah. the ones that we like we one one of our funny projects that um that we just received is we made a large number of uh marble statues in the shape of grenades and they're just kind of fun to to put around but we realized that importing thousands and thousands of pounds of chinese grenades was going to raise some suspicion so it took a little bit of explaining and pictures <laughs> to the uh when they when they, when they when the customs agents wanted to know what's the content of this and like they're grenades from china yep that's we, we the craziest part for me is i have no i have zero ability to distinguish what expensive art from non in that first time we met we were touring your co-working space and you asked the group how much do you think that piece of art costs and i don't know just my i immediately thought i don't know it's a successful guy art probably a couple thousand bucks and that what art costs these days and you you said you're like 25 dollars and everybody how does that happen and you said that you had created really cool stencils that people could take home on the weekend and easily create these in their garage and they would get paid to have like an extracurricular activity on the weekend. It's just the last thing you think of a company that owns 15 million square feet across the country. They also are, you know, creating these awesome art pieces. Who's that? Was that your idea or how did I, that? I think that was the necessity of having thousands of vacant walls. Yep. You know, and knowing that either we had to buy some like hotel art that looks like it was done by, uh, you know, a robot. Or, or we could make something that was interesting and relevant. If you could give your 21-year-old self uh, some advice, and maybe you already said it um, earlier, but is there something you would tell that 21-year-old self? Probably Netflix and chill. Like, yeah. <laughs> just buy the stock and sit home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, kind of wrapping, wrapping it up, the, the fun question we like to ask, do you have a favorite interview question that you ask people uh, when you're interviewing them? It's funny because that is the question. So my 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 sister wrote a book about um, it's called Mentors, and it was about successful people and how they got to where where they were where they were going. And one of the questions she always used to ask people is, "What do people like to ask you?" <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think you may have just. Uh, I think you may have just nailed it, but I, I think one of the most interesting things that that people ask me and I ask people is about experimentation. Yeah, you know, in other words, like, are you are you willing to try things? Are you willing to stop trying them when they don't work? Um, you know, and and I I I saw a presentation. I did a um, like a one week MBA, or as I like to think of it, as everything I would have remembered had I actually done a two year MBA. Yeah. It was just in the in the one week, and and the uh, the person who was giving the presentation talked about, you know, his his three main business areas, and then there was a fourth, that was kind of the field, you know, there was banking, there was education, there was retail, expanded retail, and then there was this like mix of everything and he just described it as like one of these things is going to be one of our big things one day we're just not sure which one yeah and that was that was exploring uh which which, which i love okay thank you very much for coming up to fort worth and chatting with me today it's been awesome thanks for having me 
Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode.